Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory@toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. And uh, excited for what God's doing here today. I want to say thanks to Pastor Bill for a great word, encouraging word last week. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And... Uh, and was, was, uh, had, a, had a good time away, Ron and I, as Pastor Bill said, attended a conference uh, this past week, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that here in just a minute, really good opportunity. I never seem to go anywhere that I don't come back and go, man, am I so thankful for Calvary, and um, that God has given um, to me and to our family the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing here, and uh, just, just really felt, I wanted to just say thanks. We, we love being a part of what God's doing here, love you, and are excited about that. I think it's important maybe that we use the word love today because it's Valentine's week, isn't it? At least Hallmark wants us to remember that it's Valentine's week, don't they? Some of you guys can thank me because you had forgotten and uh, you've got two days to save your marriages. You're welcome. So uh, <laughs> that's the way it works. They, they asked a group of four through eight-year-olds this question. They said, what does love mean? Here's some of the definitions that they gave. This was a, a little guy named Carl, five years old. He said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Chrissy's age six. She says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Yeah, isn't that love? This one, Rebecca, who's age eight, there's a lot of insight in this. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love, she says. Billy's age four. Billy's pretty wise. He says, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. that neat? Love is when you kiss all the time. (laughs) Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. (laughs) They look gross when they kiss. Uh, love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Brad Pitt. Here's the last one, Jessica, age eight. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. Isn't that good? It's good for us, Valentine's Day or not, to talk about love. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. Today will actually be the, the last sermon in, in our study of 1 Peter. We were actually going to go um, three more weeks. That's why the title of the series is Play Nice, because Peter talks a lot about our relationships in difficult times. If you remember, the whole book of 1 Peter is about how do you live during times of crisis, struggle, trial, persecution. And so we were going we to talk about this over the next three weeks and, and talk about um, our marriages, how we deal with difficult situations with people in our relationships, and how do we respond to authority. But I just really feel like um, we're kind of we're released from the Lord of doing that. We're actually going to start a new series next week that's called Living Right Side Up in an Upside Down World. Have you seen where our world is upside down? I think there's a lot of good things we, we can look at from Scripture, so we're going to start that next week. But I want to talk about marriage today, and we're going, to, we're going to do a drive-by in the process of what Scripture says about our relationships and about dealing with authority and how we can play nice with one another in our relationships. But let's focus in on marriage today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands 
so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He says a lot there, doesn't he? I mean, some of which is a little bit... Uh, I don't know, you question some of it, you ask some questions, maybe for some of you guys or ladies, maybe a little troublesome. What's he mean by that? It's a little problematic in some of what he says. Well, let, let's unpack this and let's just start here. Marriage is one of those interesting things to preach about because as soon as I say we're gonna talk about marriage, I had one guy tell me this after the last service. He says, as soon as you said married, I realized my wife and I have it all figured out. He says, I just put the pencil down because we're great. We didn't need your sermon. I was like, oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate you too. You know, it's that kind of thing. And then some people, you immediately go to what, what I would refer to as the what ifs and the what abouts. Because you say, hey, you're going to talk about marriage, but what if someone here is single? What if they're divorced? What about those who are too young to be married? Or what about those who are, who are struggling in their marriage? Because anytime you preach a message like this, you're a little concerned, am I going to leave somebody out? Are, are, they, are they on the outs in this? Well, two things that I hope you'll, you'll see right at the beginning. The principles we're going to look at today apply to more than just our marriages. They apply to all of us because they apply to every relationship in our life. The other thing is this. I don't know if you've recognized, but marriage is a topic about which there's a lot of confusion in our society right now. In fact, I hear this more and more from people who go, well, what's the real value of marriage anyways? Why does it even matter? Do, do people really need to do that? If they love each other, why do they need to do that? It's kind of an antiquated idea. Not even to mention that so many people are defining marriage today based either on preference or convenience. So it puts us in a place to say, finding out what God's word says about marriage is probably more critical now than ever in my lifetime. And so this is important for us. Now we're not gonna take time today to talk about the cultural battle that's kind of stirring up around marriage. That's not our focus, that's not really what we're trying to talk about. In fact, we're not even gonna talk about the, the sexual aspects of marriage that we hear so much about in the news and in our culture today, although the Bible's not silent on that. How do you define marriage? If you look at what scripture says, marriage is defined as a relationship between one man and one woman for a lifetime and all sexual activity is to be confined to that relationship between husband and wife in marriage for a lifetime. That's what scripture says. But today we're gonna focus on what the text says here. We're gonna focus on what Peter says about marriages and the relational aspect of them. And if you remember, he's writing to people during difficult times. So what I wanna give to you today is five keys to a strong marriage in tough times. Because whether your marriage is going through a tough time or not, at times it can be tough to be married. And whether you have a strong marriage, whether, and I know in this last service we had some engaged couples, maybe this is a foundational thing for you to begin to build the foundation of your marriage. Maybe you're not married yet, but you, you hope to be someday, or maybe you're just curious about relationships. This is an interesting thing for us. I also have felt this very strongly today, that for some of you, your marriage is, is maybe at a crisis point, at a real critical point. And God wants to use this message today 
to bring oxygen to the soul of your marriage as you allow his word to help to bring healing and restoration. So five keys to a strong marriage in tough times, some things that I think are important for us to see out of Peter's passage here. Here's the first one, number one, and this is a whole lot bigger than marriage. Number one, relationships are spiritual. Number one, relationships are spiritual. It's interesting because he says wives, in verse one, he says wives in the same way, and then when you get to verse seven, he says husbands in the same way. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means is that in this whole passage, not just these seven verses, but from verse 13 in chapter two, all the way through kind of, it bleeds over to the very beginning of chapter four, Peter is talking to us about our relationships. He talks about our general relationships with one another. He talks to us about our relationships in the workplace. He talks about in the home. He talks about how we relate to authority. And he starts it all in verse 13 by saying this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. He says, look, you're doing this. This idea of submission, that you give of yourself, that you submit yourself to someone else. And this is for everybody, right? This idea of submission, you do this for the Lord's sake. So your relationships really aren't about you, they're spiritual. Sometimes we wanna make our relationships over here in this compartment and our relationship with God over here in this compartment when the two are intricately connected. Understand this, your relationships with others reveal the state of your relationship with God. Your relationship with others, how you interact with others is actually a really interesting barometer of what your relationship with God is like. And we see this, I'd encourage you, you can go back and read verses 13 through 17 where he talks about authority. In fact, it's actually a very timely passage for us right now in our nation. But, but beyond that, we have to understand this, relationships do not happen in a vacuum. They don't just happen off on their own, they're not separate. Your relationships happen in the context of your spiritual life, and this is critical for us to understand. Let's, let's park here for just a few moments. Your relationship with God has a direct effect on your relationship with others. Your relationship with God, that, that, that vertical relationship, has a direct effect on your horizontal relationship, on your relationship with others. I know this to be true, because if I'm spiritually struggling, now, of course, that never happens because I'm a pastor, right? But if it did happen, right? It happens, okay? It happens to all of us. And if I'm spiritually struggling, then it has an effect on my relationship with my family and with my friends and with my coworkers. But if I'm in a place in my life spiritually that's vibrant and I'm, and I'm resting in God's grace, it helps me to be able to show more grace to you and some of you really need it, amen? Right, do you understand that? So where I am with God affects where I am with others. What we've already said then is true, that your relationships with others reveal the state of your relationship with God. This is really key. It's a barometer of what's going on in your spiritual life. If you're experiencing a lack of patience, maybe a struggle with anger, maybe a sense of hate or lust or pride, it could be that at its root cause, it has more to do with just that person it's not just horizontal, maybe it's vertical. Maybe there's something that's going on there between you and God. In fact, let's dig just a little bit more. Here's what I've found. My relational inadequacies reveal my lack of sufficiency in God. When, I, when I'm struggling relationally, especially if I'm in a place where I personally feel inadequate, what it oftentimes proves 
is that there's a struggle between me and God that I'm not resting in my sufficiency in him, that I'm not remembering that my identity is not found in me, but it's found in him, that my hope is in him, not in myself. If I'm wrestling with inadequacy in my own life, oftentimes it's because I've not put my confidence and my sufficiency in God. Does that make sense? The other side of that's true too. My relational pride reveals my dependence on self. My relational pride reveals my dependence on self. That when I'm feeling prideful, when I'm feeling pretty good about myself, oftentimes it means that I'm focusing on myself instead of focusing on God. And I see that in my relationships. I think maybe the reason that this, that this was so, I don't know, clear to me was because God had to kind of do a little adjustment in my heart this week. I mentioned we were, we were at this conference this week, and it's an event that's put on by the Assemblies of God, which is... Um, the fellowship of churches that Calvary belongs to. And the conference in particular is put on for churches that are about the same size as, as Calvary, so that kind of practically we deal with a lot of the same issues. And I find that of all the different things I go to, it's usually the one that's kind of the most helpful, come back with resources, it's really good. So I look forward to this. It's always a really good event, and I feel like I come back ready to be a better pastor. The, the only problem with this conference is that for me, it always feels like I'm back in high school. And here's why. I was never the coolest guy in high school. Can anybody relate to that? I was like always like just the, a guy. I was never like the guy. I was never like a cool guy in high school. So when I walk into this room, I'm immediately reminded that I'm not a cool guy. Because there's a lot of people in this room that are a whole lot cooler than I am. And a lot of them want me to know that. You know that ego even happens in men of God, right? So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. So you walk in, you kind of feel this way. And I notice it immediately. I immediately kind of wrestle with, I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I really fit in here. I don't know if this is, I don't know if I'm good. You start asking all those questions until you see a guy who you know you're better than. And then you're like, oh, I know I'm better than him. Guess I do fit in here. I'm not the biggest loser in the room. You know, you have those thoughts. And God had to say, Gillian, what's wrong with you? It doesn't matter whether you think you belong here or you're better than here. What matters is I've called you here. What matters is you're my child. And your relationship with other people is not based on what they think about you, but about what I think about you and what you think about me. See, both your inadequacy and your pride need to be aligned with who I am and what I say about you. I needed a little alignment. Does that make sense? Because your relationships aren't just happening in a vacuum, they're spiritual. And the state of your spiritual life affects your relationships, and your relationships actually affect the state of your spiritual life. This is really important for us to grasp. Even beyond that, it's critically important if we're gonna understand this in our marriages, and here's why. Because marriage is not just another relationship. Yeah, this is key in school and in work and in our families, but marriage is a spiritual covenant, not just a legal agreement. When you get married, you're not just signing a piece of paper and doing some kind of business with the courthouse and getting it all taken care of. When you say those I do's, when you make that vow to that other person, that marriage is a spiritual covenant between you and God. And the spiritual ramifications of it are huge, which is what brings us to the second kind of key that we want to look at for having a marriage that stays strong in tough times. Number two, love your spouse for heaven's sake. Number two, love your spouse for heaven's sake. Now, notice there's no comma there between spouse and for, because sometimes you would say to somebody, love your spouse, comma, for heaven's sake. But that's not it. This is not a, 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 
a description. This is a so that. This is a why. Why do you love your spouse? For heaven's sake. Look at what Peter says to the wives. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. There's an eternal consequence at stake here. See, Peter's writing, and he, he focuses in on this portion, to wives whose husbands who have not yet become Christians. And this wasn't unusual in that culture because you've got to remember, this isn't a Christian culture. The Christian message is coming into that community. It's new to them. And oftentimes what they found is that women were more likely to convert more quickly than their husbands. There was kind of a cultural reason behind that. See, in that culture, and we'll look at this in a moment, it was a very male-dominated culture where women were to be very subservient. And that was the way that the culture was in that day. And as a result of that, they did not have as much social consequence if they were to convert. If you were to leave the state religion that Rome had for people in that pagan environment, and you became a Christian, you could lose your job, you could lose your livelihood, you would lose your influence. And so men were less likely to, to respond as quickly as women were, is what they found in that time. It's just a unique thing. And so oftentimes what it would take, it would take the example of the wife and the way that she lived her life to influence the husband to kind of push him over the line to faith because he didn't want to just hear about it, he wanted to see it and see if it was lived out. Does that make sense? So Peter's writing this, and he says to these wives, look, there is the opportunity that by the way that you live your life, in order for your husband to be spiritually open, he may have to see the proof lived out in your life. The truth is, the way you live affects the state of your spouse's soul. Chew on that for just a minute. The way you live your life affects the state of your spouse's soul. He did not say the way you preach your sermon. In fact, he says you do it without words. The way you live affects the state of your spouse's soul. Now, he addresses it to women because of that culture, but as you'll see as we, as we go through this, he does not hold men or ladies superior in any way. What he's trying to say here is this. Because of that culture, he addresses it to women. I know this principle to be true, whether you're a male or a female. The way that you live your life will affect the state of your spouse's soul. It's in all relationships. It's a powerful truth. Because I've seen in my experience... A wife watch her husband come home from church and say, ever since you started this church thing, you're nicer to me. Something was making a difference. I've watched husbands say, you're different since you started talking about Jesus. Probably the, the most, I don't know, the best word I can think of, the, the hardest individual I've ever probably known was my Uncle Jack. Man, did he have a story. He was just kind of hard and cold, rarely smiled. A lot of people just thought he was just downright mean. His wife, my Aunt Eleanor, they're, they're both uh, no longer living. My Aunt Eleanor was a saint. And she just loved him. Stayed faithful to him. And every Sunday, she'd get up and go to church, and he'd just sit in that same lazy boy recliner and just watch her walk in the bedroom, get ready, walk out, and go to church. One Sunday morning, as she was walking in the bedroom to get ready to go to church, he stood up and walked in with her. She said, where are you going? He said, church. She said, okay. See, years and years of her faithful living gradually softened this really hardened man's heart to the point that before he died, he, he was such an active servant of Jesus Christ. Why? It was the testimony of her life that made a difference. See, spouse, the state of your spiritual life has a dramatic effect 
on the state of your spouse's life as well. Peter doesn't just pick on the ladies. Look at what he says to the men. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that, look at this, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Isn't that interesting? He says, look, guys, if you're going to run roughshod over your wives, even if that is what your culture says is acceptable because it did in the first century, you were the man. You could do whatever you wanted to do in that culture. And Peter says, look, even though you think you can do this, if you do, it will hinder the effectiveness of God to be able to respond to your prayers. It's really interesting. See, God's response to your needs is affected by your response to your spouse's needs. This is actually not an unusual scriptural principle, and Jesus even kind of reinforces this. Remember when he says, you forgive so that you can be forgiven? Because the way that you forgive others actually has, a, has a, an effect on how deeply you can be forgiven. There's this passage, and so you see this at play here too. The way that you interact with your spouse, the way that you respond to their needs, actually has a bearing on how God is able to respond to your needs. I think this is why. Because God says, if you can't treasure that thing that I've entrusted to you, how can I entrust you with more? If you can't be a good steward of what you have, when you pray for more, how can I entrust you with that? If you haven't already been faithful, this is huge. There is no human relationship with greater spiritual impact than that of marriage. Relationships are spiritual, and this one is at the very, the very pinnacle of it. That's why I... I'm just so thankful that I'm married out of my league. <laughs> I can tell you publicly, and, and thank Rhonda today, that on a daily basis, her love for Jesus influences our family, makes me a better husband, pastor. I think it even makes me better looking. I'm so thankful <laughs> for my wife. Here's why. Because your earthly conduct has eternal consequences for yourself and others. So husbands, wives, love your spouse for heaven's sake. And let me express this too. To those of you who are dating, I think you've got to realize that there are spiritual ramifications to the choices that you make during your dating life. And here's the reality. I've known an awful lot of people who have gotten messed up because they were in bad dating relationships. If you are in a dating relationship or you're looking to be, make a commitment that whether that relationship works out or not, whether it becomes a lifelong commitment or not, that you are gonna respect and honor that person and be someone that brings a spiritual life to their relationship and not detriment. Does that make sense? If we're talking about dating, it's probably good for us to go to the third thing. Number three, beauty is more than meets the eye. Number three, third thing that Peter points out here, beauty is more than meets the eye. I think oftentimes we get caught up with first impressions, the things that we see. There was this young girl that started dating this guy, and uh, so he came to pick her up, and mom and dad were smart enough to have him come in the house. They had a conversation, and what they found out about this guy, not just judging a book by his cover, but he was mean, he was rude, he had been in an awful lot of trouble, and he really didn't treat the young lady right. He was just kind of a, a bad influence in her life. So they went out on the date. She comes home the next day. They kind of sit down with her, and they, they say, look, we're not, we're not so sure that he's, he's the right guy for you. There's just some things here that just don't seem right. We're, we're a little concerned. And mom was trying to be diplomatic, and here's, here's what she says. She says, dear, he just doesn't seem like the, like the nice boy you've dated before. He's just really not that nice. 
And she looked at her mom and said, oh, mom, come on. If he wasn't that nice, why would he be doing 500 hours of community service? First Peter chapter three, verse three. Peter says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. It's interesting what he says here. He says, look, beauty is more than meets the eye. See, it's the human tendency to equate beauty with appearance. It's just what we naturally do. If you don't believe it, go to the grocery store. Look at the magazines when you check out. It is the human tendency to equate beauty with appearance. And this is important for us to understand. And it was so true even in the first century. Like women would judge their value by what they looked like. In fact, when he says elaborate hairstyles, oftentimes the more elaborately your hair was braided, it was more of an expression of your value to the point that they would, they would actually like put gold into their hair to be able to show their value. Talked about jewelry, talks about fine clothing. I mean, it's, it's really not that different from today. And especially if you were a wealthy man, your wife, the way that she looked, would express how much value you had in the community. So appearance was a big deal. And Peter says, look, you, you're missing the mark here. He gives a clarification. He's saying, look, your value should not be placed in the way that you look. Now this is important. Peter is not giving a prohibition, but rather a clarification. Peter's not saying, hey, don't look nice. He's not saying, hey, baby, however you roll out of bed, that's good enough. That's not what he's saying, right? In fact, if you look at scripture, both the example of Esther, if you look at uh, the, the teaching kind of in the Song of Solomon, it says that we are to find each other attractive. That, that's a part of the process. So sometimes people have taken this passage of scripture and just said, well, you're not supposed to look nice at all. That's not his point. His point is not a prohibition, it's a clarification. He's saying, look, your value should not be found in the way that you look. Which probably brings us to a good point to talk about modesty for a moment. There's this interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where, where Paul is writing to Timothy and he's encouraging them to deal with some challenges that were coming up in the church. First, he addresses the men. Listen to this. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8, he says, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So you know what the guys were doing? They were kind of getting into arguments. They're kind of being angry, kind of just acting like guys, being loud, trying to draw attention to themselves. And then he says this, verse 9, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So now he says to the ladies and ladies, you shouldn't be drawing attention to yourself. His point here is this, in your life, your point is not to draw attention to yourself. Guys, by your outbursts, or ladies, by the way that you look, and I would say that both of those apply kind of to either sex, Right? He's saying, look, don't try to draw attention to yourself. That's not the point. The reality is when you are the focus, life is blurry. When you are the focus, when it's all about you, everything else in life gets blurry. And you can't see things clearly. So he talks here about modesty because he wants them to know that the way that you look has an effect on other people. It affects how they think about you. It deals with everything from intimidation to temptation. And we need to be wise and we need to be aware of that. And here's the reason why. Look, I, I think especially for those of you who are, are young adults, junior high, high school, college years, you are more than what you see in the mirror. 
So much of the world tells us that you are judged by what you look like, but you're a whole lot more than what you see in the mirror. I had a good friend my, my freshman year of college, and you know, your freshman year, you're just first semester, you're just trying to meet people, you're trying to figure things out, and I had a good friend who met this girl, and he came back, and he basically was like, she's so beautiful. She's the most beautiful thing I've ever, even drool. She's the most beautiful thing I've just ever seen. She's just awesome. I mean, he could not stop talking about how beautiful this girl was. Well, not everybody had cars. I had a car my freshman year. He did not. She did not. And I forget what it was, but he's like, hey, can she go with us? So he invites her to go with us. So we get in the car, wherever we were going. I'm sitting, I'm driving. He's sitting there. She's in the back seat. We couldn't have driven for more than five minutes. And I just watched his face change because he found out that this goddess was one of the most annoying people he'd ever met. Every time she opened her mouth, it just grated on him. And I was having a blast watching him just change, you know, to go from, man, she's amazing, to how quickly can we get her out of the car, right? Because appearance is external, beauty is internal. Don't mess those things up. Your appearance is external, but beauty is internal. He talks about having the unfading beauty, where he talks about gentleness, that's a loving concern. He talks about a quietness. That's not men, by the way. When I read that passage and it said a quiet spirit, I saw a couple guys elbow their wives, right? Not be quiet. He's talking there about being peaceful in your life. Here's the point. Beauty has more to do with action and attitude than it does with appearance, which maybe leads us then to the fourth thing that we want to look at today, what Peter digs in a little bit more. Number four, if, uh, if you're looking for some keys to have a marriage that stays strong in tough times, it's this. Actions speak louder than words. Wow, that was a response. I didn't even say anything yet. <laughs> Number four, actions speak louder than words. First Peter chapter 3, verse 5. And, and listen to some of the language here. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. There's some pretty strong language there, isn't it? Hey, ladies, submit, obey, and call him your Lord. I had a guy after first service come up and thank me. He says, thank you, I'll be using that all day. <laughs> you gotta understand the cultural tension of that time, right? You've got women who are walking away from the pagan religion of their husbands, going into Christianity, and that pagan religion said women had very little value. And so Peter's saying, look, don't stir up more trouble than you have to here. You respond in a way that honors God but still honors your husband. So there's a cultural tension there that we don't feel in the same way. But we still feel an awful lot of cultural tensions, don't we, between the sexes at times? I mean, it's really been very clear in our culture even at this time. So we have to understand how do the principles of this passage apply to our married lives today because there's, a, there's, there's always a backstory here, right? There's a group of women who, who went to this seminar, this conference, to, part of the, the subject was, how do I love my husband more? And so they were asked, how many of you love your husband? Well, most of them, you know, that's what they're there for. They're raising their hands, right? And they said, well, when was the last time you told him that? Some of them said, well, I told him today. Some said, well, yesterday or a few days ago. Some were like, I don't, I don't remember when. And so they said, well, let's do a little experiment then. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to take out your phones. So you've got a room full of married women Take out your phones, and I want you to text your husband these words, I love you, sweetheart. So they did it. And then the people leading the seminar said, now, hand your phone to the person next to you, 
and have them read your husband's response. Here's some of the responses. Who is this? What now? Did you wreck the car again? One guy, one guy responded, am I dreaming? Don't beat about the bush. Just tell me how much you need. What did you do now? Uh, this, this one's interesting. If you don't tell me who this message is actually for, someone will die. My favorite, your mother is coming to stay with us, isn't she? It's a weird relationship there sometimes, right? So Peter, I think in these verses and then later to the guys, he says three things to the ladies, three things to the guys. How do actions speak louder than words? Let's talk to the ladies first. Here, let's hit this. Ladies, he uses that word submit, right? Ladies, help your husband lead your home. This is the point here. Help your husband lead your home. God has designed a structure for the home. And and in in God's word, he says that the husband is the, the head of the home. He's not better. He's not more important. But he has a responsibility. Before God, your husband is responsible for the spiritual and personal well-being of your home. So don't beat him down. Help him in the expression of that. Help him to lead in your home. It's interesting, then the next word that he uses is obey, right? And he uses it in the context of Abraham and Sarah. What did God ask Abraham to do? He said, Abraham, I want you to leave where you are, go somewhere, I'll tell you when you get there. You just follow me. And Abraham had to go without knowing where he was going, and he took his whole family with him, and his wife Sarah at some point had to do this. Ladies, partner with your husband in following God. As God leads you, as he leads your home, partner with him in that. And guys, let, let her, there's, there's a key in that word partner there. I am so thankful for the uncountable number of dumb things I haven't done because of Rhonda's influence in my life. She's over there saying amen. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that because sometimes, guys, we're not all that smart. And there was a guy in the last service who at that point yelled out Amen. <laughs> And then he gets to this next one, that Sarah called him her Lord. So the other, the other night, I'd been thinking about this. You know, I've been reading this text, thinking about how to preach this, and Ronna comes in the room, and we had these ice cream bars, and so she hands me one, she had one, and don't judge us, it was very good, and we were out of town, and, you know, so, so I got the ice cream bar. And I looked at her, and I said, you know, I'm reading this text, I'm going to preach on marriage on Sunday, and there's this one passage where it says that Sarah called Abraham her Lord. It caused me to think, I wonder if I'm not getting enough respect around here. (laughs) She looks at me, didn't even take a breath, didn't even skip a beat. She says, you know, the Bible says that the husband is to love his wife the way that Christ loved the church, even laying down his life for her. Give me your ice cream bar. (laughs) Like that. She didn't even... Didn't even think twice about it. What does that mean? Called him her Lord. It was a title of respect. It wasn't a matter of, hey, you are my authority. You are my superior. It was saying, I honor you. In that culture, in that society, she made sure that other people knew that she honored her husband. Ladies, make respect your default mode. See, I think too many times, and this is true both for husbands and wives, this is true for us in in every relationship, we go right to being critical instead of being respectful. And what if we made respect our default mode? What if we honored one another? What kind of difference 
would that make in the things that we said, especially publicly about our spouses? We were talking about this passage with some of our staff, and I said, I think it's interesting that Peter had six verses for the wives, but he only had one for the husbands. And a lady on our staff goes, yep, that's because women are capable of understanding complex things. <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you in the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. What's he saying here? First, men, become students of your wives. That word considerate that is there, every other time it's translated in the NIV in the New Testament, it's translated as the word knowledge or understanding. So what he's saying there is not just be nice to your wife. He's saying, look, get to know your wife. Understand her. Find out how she thinks. Recognize what her needs are. You need to be a student of your wife. Guys, sometimes for us, we, we get plowing through life so many times that we totally miss being diligent about understanding our wives. Then he says that we are to respect them. That word respect has inherently in it the idea that you have something that's a treasure, something that's worth a great price, something that has value. I think this even goes back to what he says about our prayers. We need to value and treasure the spouse that God has given to us. And then he uses this really interesting phrase. He says, treasure her as the weaker partner, to which some of you ladies looked at your guy and said, I'll show you who's weaker. <laughs> it's kind of an awkward term, isn't it? What's it even mean? It's not a measure of superiority or of worth or of value. Most commentators believe that Peter's just making a statement here that shows that, that physically, the, the, the norm is that men are, are more physically, say, stronger, let's say, than women. But the point here is to point out for the husband, look, you have a role of being the protector and of being the one who treasures and values the gift of your spouse and your family. But what he's not saying here is that you are to lord that over her. This isn't a, a, a license for abuse or mistreatment. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says, look, you are to respect her as the weaker partner and as a fellow heir in the gift of life. See, he goes right to this point and he says, look, your wife has the very same value that you have before God. So no matter what you might have been taught or what you might think or what culture says, the reality is that before God, you are equal. Understand this. Let's, let's do a little marriage math for a moment. Men, remember that your plus one is equal. Have you heard this term that if you're gonna take somebody to a wedding or a party or whatever, they say, hey, you can bring a plus one? Well, that's your spouse, and understand this, your plus one, men, is equal. The two become one. There's no greater than or less than. She's not a fraction. God has said that the two of you are equal in value. You're not spiritually or personally superior to your wife. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Husband and wife are different in role, but equal in value. This is key to understand, because if you wrestle with this, it will create struggles. I remember doing premarital counseling years and years ago, and this couple sitting in my office, and he made it very clear how much better he was than her at everything. He made sure she knew that he was stronger, he was smarter, almost this idea of she was just lucky to have him. And I'd have punched him if he wasn't bigger and she hadn't already given him a look that killed. Get this. 
God has created you to be partners in this thing. And how do you succeed in this thing? Number five, to build a happy home, you must have a strong foundation. Number five, to build a happy home, you must have a strong foundation. What's Peter say? Wives, it's, it's the hope that you've placed in God. Husbands, it's the fact that you're co-heirs in this thing, the, the grace that God has given to you. He's saying, look, your marriage will not make it unless the foundation of your marriage is your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want your home to be a place that thrives and prospers, and these are troubled times, aren't they? If we're gonna be real, it's, it's not easy to have a healthy, strong marriage in so many ways in our lives, and then let's express that. For some of you, you may even be in troubled times. It might not even be with your spouse. It might be an issue of your health. It might be an issue with your kids. It might be an issue with your finances, but you're going through a tough time. What do you do in that tough time? You make sure that Jesus Christ is your foundation. Your home will not stand if the foundation is not firm because you're gonna have troubled times. And when they come, your home will not stand if the foundation is not firm. There was an emperor in the third century Roman emperor named Claudius II. His nickname was Claudius the Cruel. And he, um, he decided that he would ban marriage because he found that soldiers who were married typically did not perform as well. He wanted them to go out and he wanted them to be willing to give everything. So he banned marriage because he didn't want them thinking about a wife and kids back home. And in a lot of ways, it didn't matter because that culture, that society was so promiscuous that um, they thought well, marriage was irrelevant. At the same time, Christianity was sweeping the Roman Empire. And as you can already tell from what we talked about today, there's a whole lot more to marriage than just a, a marriage license. It's how God's designed things. And so as people were becoming Christians, they wanted to get married, even though the emperor had said they shouldn't. And there was a priest in that day whose name was Valentine. And so he would marry people. He would do these secret wedding ceremonies, leading them to the opportunity to be married in, in objection, in rebellion even, to the stands of the emperor. Well, Valentine was eventually caught and imprisoned and tortured for performing these weddings. In the year 269 AD, he was sentenced to a three-part execution. He would be beaten, stoned, and finally decapitated because of his stand for Christian marriage. And when he knew he was going to be executed, he had developed a, a friendship with the girl who was the daughter of the jailer that was keeping him in, in captivity for the empire. And when he knew he was going to execution, he wrote her a note. And when he signed it at the end, he said, from your Valentine. You see how we got that? there's a religious leader who's an expert on Valentine. He said, what Valentine means to me is that there comes a time when you have to lay your life upon the line for what you believe. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that even to the point of death. He says, Valentine has come to be known as the patron saint of lovers. Before you enter into a Christian marriage, you want some sense of God in your life, some great need of God in your life. And we know particularly in the modern world, many people are meeting God through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he says this, if Valentine were here today, he would say to married couples that there comes a time when you're going to have to suffer. It's not gonna be easy to maintain your commitment and your vows in marriage. 
don't be surprised if the gushing love that you have for someone changes to something less gushing, but maybe something much more mature. And there's times when we have to realize love goes deeper than just what we feel. It's a commitment that we make with our firm foundation on Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment before we, um, before we wrap up. And it's possible that for some of you, whether you're married or not, when I talked about a foundation on Jesus Christ, when we talked about the fact that our relationships are, are connected to our relationship with God, that you realize that maybe part of why things aren't right in the horizontal relationships is because it's not right in the vertical one. And that today you need to begin by making things right with God, building that foundation on Him. There is no better time for you to do that than right now. Scripture says you can simply call on the name of the Lord and He will bring His strength and He will bring His salvation and He will bring His forgiveness because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And He rose on the third day so that you could know life. And if you'll simply, in just a few moments we'll pray, if you'll simply just call out to Him, from your heart, you'll say, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and my Savior. He can bring that eternal change, that foundation to your life. In fact, if you need to make that decision today, I'd encourage you to stop by our Connection Center when we're done today. I'd love to pray with you. have a Bible we want to give to you. want to encourage you in those steps. The second thing that I want to do today is this. I, I want to pray for our marriages. I know that that's not everybody in the room. And I know that a conversation like this can actually be very painful for some of us because of things that we feel like we've lost or, or that we've wished we'd had. But God has established the home really as the center of the Christian community. And I think it's critically important that we pray for and do our best to develop that home, those marriages, as a strong center. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're, if you're here in sanctuary or maybe you're over in auditorium too, and you're married, would you stand just right where you are? Um, just go ahead and do that now if you're married. And if you're standing next to your spouse, maybe, uh, maybe take them by the hand or put an arm around them or just uh, kind of make a point of contact. If you have to move around a little bit, that's okay. Um, in fact, Rhonda, I'm lonely. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I, I'm going I'm to lead us in a prayer. In fact, if you're engaged, maybe you're not married yet, but you're engaged, why don't you stand too? I think this is, this is critically important, maybe especially if your fiance's here. And um, we're going to pray. And for some of you, this is just a really good foundational thing. It's a really good reminder. For others of you, this is, this is a timely word in the midst of a real challenge. And I'm going to believe that God's going to use his word to bring life to your relationships. So can we pray, Father, we come to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And it reminds you that you have given us a spouse that we are to treasure. Father, I pray for those that are engaged in this room. 
God, that you would allow your word to point them to a foundation on which they can build their marriage. God, for those that are newly married, Lord, that you would let this be a a word that would encourage them as they move on to the different seasons of life. Lord, some of us are in a real time of just marital joy. God, I pray that you would sustain that season and bring your provision in your life. Others of us, God, are riding such a whirlwind that it's easy to put our marriage on the back burner. God, would you help us to show the respect and value and love to our spouse that we would strengthen each other in the way that you've designed for us to. God, I believe there are probably those in this room or that are watching somewhere, Father, that need you to do a miracle in their marriage, to break through walls, to bring forgiveness and restoration and healing and patience and hope. God, would you do that today? Father, would you begin that work in us? Help each one of us to take the steps we need to take to bring your life, your love to our marriages. Lord, as we go from here today, we ask that you'd go with us. Father, send us out with your special favor, your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.